Today's scripture reading comes from two books of the Bible. First is the book of Colossians. Second is the book of Ephesians. Colossians chapter 13, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Second reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is God's word. Now today's sermon is um, a companion of last week's sermon, and so they go together. And if you take one or the other, um, then you kind of miss the point of this larger picture of the family that uh, Paul is trying to uh, apply the gospel to and to bring it, if you will, uh, to bear in our marriages and in family and just in real life and get out of, or at least from our theology, move into a place where it actually has uh, meaning in, in our lives. And these sermons, uh, although one is geared maybe a little more towards women, and one, like today, is geared more towards men, hope you understand that God's truth is God's truth. And if you are um, you know, a, a, a married woman, or, or a single woman, or even a young lady, uh, hoping to be married one day, and, or a husband, or a single guy, or a young man, hoping to be married one day. Know that you're learning a lot here about a lot of different things. As I preach to husbands today, women, you are learning about what you should be looking for in a man. Uh, he needs to have certain understandings about God's truth, uh, and you don't think that, oh, he'll change and someday learn these things. It's very important that he knows these things up front. And vice versa, to know how to treat or teach our children, what for them to pass on to them about how do I find a spouse, what should I look for in a spouse. These are the kind of things that we need to study and to know that we might teach others, but also teach ourselves uh, or learn ourselves. So today, though, it's going to be geared towards men. So women, uh, your fight, whether you are married or, um, or an older woman that's not married uh, or married, your responsibility is to teach younger women these things um, as uh, was last week. Wives and women, today your fight is for compassion. Your fight is for forgiveness. Uh, possibly uh, more uh, of one of those than the other for you uniquely. Men, your fight is for humility today. Uh, to not be thinking about the guy you're glad is here that is to hear what I'm going to say, but that you are here to hear what I'm going to say and what God wants to say through his word. And that is because if your marriage is devoid of true companionship, if it is devoid of respect, if it's devoid of love, even though you may have not caused it, you're responsible for it, according to God's word. And that means, yes, um, you can stop thinking, does he have an agenda? I have an agenda, and that is to declare that obtaining and sustaining true contentment in your marriage is directly dependent upon the husband's leading, and specifically leading the fight to have Christ at the center of it. So how do we do that? Well, a verse out of 2 Timothy, 
which is the last letter Paul wrote before he was um, beheaded in Rome to a young man named Timothy who was pastoring. In chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you may be familiar with these, maybe not. He says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So these are critical verses for everyone, and I think for for two particular reasons. One, if these verses are true, know that the words of Paul to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, any of the words of Paul in Scripture are the very words of God. And if they're the very words of God, then to disobey Paul is to disobey God. Hugely important. And secondly, if these verses are true, then the purpose of Scripture is to do more, though it does this, than just declare truth about God. In fact, it is by grace, through the power of the Spirit, designed to train you, to equip you, and to help you walk in His ways. Now, if, verse 17, as it says, it's to equip you for every good work, then that includes husbandry. Now, I say that because there seems to be, and I've learned this from what I've seen in in couples I've counseled and just people I know, there seems to be a lot of confusion about what it means to be a husband in and outside the church. Men and women, as I have counseled different couples and married some and not married others, It seems as if they come to the table, they enter this covenant of marriage, if you will, with a bunch of baggage. And it's a baggage that I would describe as perverted understanding about roles. And by perverted, I don't mean like really weird necessarily, I just mean off of God's design. And that perversion, if you will, has been gleaned from what we've seen in culture, whether that be through TV shows and films and things like that. I remember in high school when I was teaching, it was amazing how many kids defined their history of World War II from Saving Private Ryan, right? That's that's World War II. We do that with a lot of things. We just kind of absorb from what we see in culture and experience. Some of us have really misunderstandings, perverted definitions, because of what we were taught by our own families, We have certain ways of doing things because that's how they were done for us and before us, and we just naturally think that's the way of it. And then we also have, obviously, the experiences, good but mainly bad sometimes, that pervert our definitions. We basically have everything but Scripture. That's what I've seen people come to the table. Of what's a husband, they begin to talk about what they've seen and what they know, but not what the Bible says. So as we begin this, with last week and this week and really any week we open up God's Word, never forget that as we look back at the garden and the fall of man, the relationship between man and his God, and therefore man and his wife, was not broken by accident or by ignorance. It was broken because a man rejected the Word of God. So when we talk about the brokenness of things, that is why. Men have rejected the Word of God. And what happens, or what I've seen in marriages, 
ignoring the Word of God, married people, couples, if you will, default into a what-works way of doing things. And it's based off of what is natural, what is convenient, or just sometimes what's tolerable. Whether it's biblical or not. And sometimes marriages go uh, for many years like this. Sometimes a lifetime of just doing what works. Well, this works for us. It's always worked for us. And I actually have more concern for you couples who have been married longer, hearing some of the things God has called you to do as husbands and wives, what you think about that, because I think the temptation for you is to go, well, but this works. Don't do that. Don't do that. What happens when, when people begin to adopt a what works mentality is ultimately they've given up trying to thrive in their marriage and now they're just trying to survive and find a way to put up with this person for the next 50 years. That's reality. And so the truth is God wants more for your marriage than that. And if you're not married and you've seen really cruddy marriages... He wants you to have true contentment and joy and fullness of Christ in your marriage. Great intimacy, great joy, great fruitfulness. That is his hope. And men, as the head of the family, not something you should be, something you are. You have both the responsibility for the problem and for the solution. You exist in this place of inescapable headship. You can't get away from responsibility. The kind of head, if you will, that you are in your marriage will govern what your marriage is like. And what I see most men doing, I shouldn't say most men, a lot of men who have those kind of survival marriages, is that they're in that state because they have either abused, abandoned, or avoided leadership. We need men to start acting like men. And men will choose the harder right over the easier wrong. They will choose the harder right over the easier wrong. Unfortunately, it seems, generally speaking, and I'm going to characterize, instead of men, godly men, we have a lot of boys Juveniles, if you will. A lot of cowards and a lot of bullies. Those are kind of the categories of bad leadership where it's either abandoned or abused or avoided. These are the ones who refuse to lead and to love according to Scripture and they have their different reasons why and they look different. The boys, if you will, the juveniles, they refuse and fear growing up because it's easier to remain immature and irresponsible. And these are the ones who have transferred their umbilical cord from their mom to their wife. Okay, and plugged it in. Okay? Yeah, think about that image. And these guys, uh, generally undisciplined, they have a thousand toys though, and a thousand hobbies, none of which is leading their wife. That looks different, but generally speaking. You also have cowards. And cowards are the people that, the men, if you will, that fear the hard work of leading 
often because they have married a very strong and capable woman. Now, side note, strong and capable women are awesome. Okay? I married a strong and capable woman. The problem is when that strong and capable woman keeps telling you how strong and capable they are. And it makes men often cowardly. In fact, what happens with her help, you begin to be convinced that she doesn't need your leadership. It's just easier to not make a fuss, just play the nice guy, do what you're told, and you end up being loved by everyone and respected by no one, including her. And then there are the bullies. I've met several bullies in my counseling. I've threatened many bullies in my counseling. Honestly, I've told them, if you treat your wife like that again, we will have much, much more than words. Because bullies are so fearful of being disrespected. They're so uber-manly that they rule their marriage with law and they rule it with an iron fist and they pull out the headship card at every opportunity. They demand respect from everyone. Oftentimes they receive respect in the world. They succeed in the world in a lot of things. They achieve a lot. And they provide everything for their family except what they need, which is his love. That's a bully. So obviously I built some pretty big categories and we've kind of could pervert or change those a little bit in different ways, but the reality is a lot of you guys are in those categories somewhere. I say that from someone who occasionally can fall into one of those categories, but some of you found a lifestyle there. And you have your reasons of why you ultimately have given up. Why you've given up leading. And some of them will sound very convincing. You'll tell us about how you were raised. You will tell us about how incredibly strong your wife is and how disrespectful she is and she doesn't want me to lead. You'll tell us about some difficult experience that you have as a reason why you can't lead. So let me just say it very plainly. Your upbringing might explain your natural tendencies. We all have them. Your current situation will probably help us empathize with the difficulty of your task. And your past experiences might help us to understand your reluctance reluctance to do it God's way, but none of that excuses your refusal to fight to honor Christ in your marriage and to love your bride as you ought. None of it excuses it. Explains it, helps us to understand it, does not excuse it. That's my agenda. In order to get a full picture, like we did with women, we need to go back to the beginning and see what God's design was for men prior to sin coming in and perverting it. And so if you turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at a quick passage about the creation of man and what Adam was charged to do and be. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, says this, 
Speaking about creation, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there was put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip to verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Later we read last week, he creates woman, brings her to the man, charges him to take care of her, and Adam in response sings a great song, and they decide to be fruitful and multiply and follow God's command to do so. So we learn a lot about the expectations of men and and specifically husbands. First and foremost, we learn that men were created as builders. Now, Adam is created first and placed as the head, if you will, of all creation, bearing the primary responsibility to subdue the world. The world that God had created to represent God and to create order out of what was chaos. In other words, men are created to work. Work had a different feeling than it probably does today for men. It was a grace and still is a grace, but at one point it was a joyful privilege, part of the design. Men were created for challenge. They were created for innovation and exploration and construction. There are different forms of that. But they're hardwired to be task-oriented builders. And we see this in how they relate to things. We see in how they relate to their work. We see this in how they relate to one another. We see this in how they relate in the relationship with their wives and children. They're task-oriented. That's not a bad thing. It's how they're wired. Now, masculinity, I believe, is cultivated when men are required to create or to recreate things with their physical bodies or their minds. And there's different expressions of that. Sometimes it's very blue-collar, I'm going to build this. Sometimes very artistic expression, mindful things. And that's, both those are great. They're creating, gifted differently. And through all of this work, they were to become tough and resilient and disciplined and unrelenting. They were built to carry and work a lot. They can handle it. They were also created as protectors. So as God's property manager, if you will. They were created and expected to protect God's creation. Everything that was made. Including His bride. And He was to provide security, if you will, for the garden. Security for God's stuff. And security for this woman. One of the greatest fears women have is insecurity. 
Something a man is supposed to be providing. We think of security physically, right? I remember when I first got married, uh, growing up, uh, my dad always had an axe handle underneath his bed, right? Never had guns or anything like that, but that for, like, was for me the men- mental image of security for the home. I have it under my bed today, the very same one. I don't know if you even knew that, okay? I have it. And I remember when I first got married, I remember the, the first night I was in my own home with my bride going, kind of puffing my chest up. I need to walk the grounds, you know? Check the windows. I never checked the windows before, right? Check the windows, look outside, just kind of look out. Everyone, I am in control of this kingdom. Don't try to come in. I got a woman in here and I'm guarding her, okay? I was protecting her. Nothing what I was going to do. I mean, I had this like sick, Hope that someday I come home and some guy has like broken into my house and I'm like, oh yeah, bring it, right? Just want to show you who's protecting this place. Men are built for that. But then you, you transition, you say, well, it's much more than just physical, physical security. You were given a person and to protect, if you will, her heart. That's much harder, I've learned over 17 years of marriage. I mean, I can provide security, I can, provide, I can build up my arsenal and, and guard, but protecting a woman's heart is, is, really, I didn't fully understood it until I had a daughter, I think, of what that really meant. God's enemies are to be man's enemies, and are. And oftentimes, the last thing that's breaking into your there's nothing breaking into your house or something breaking into the heart of your wife. So men are built for battle. They're built for attack. They're built for defense. They're built to protect truth. They're built to protect justice. They're built to protect the weak and the vulnerable, especially your bride, in every way. And they're also built as, or created as cultivators. So they're builders, they're protectors and cultivators. They're not just commanded or or expected to create new things and to protect those things that are created, they're actually to cultivate what is created. And the image of cultivation is one of intentional and careful nurturing. Men are called to to cultivate the garden, literally, the the garden that God gave you, to cultivate the garden, to grow it, to care for it, And husbands were called to cultivate their brides. That was part of the work. To cultivate them physically, to cultivate them emotionally, and to cultivate them spiritually. To draw out the beauty of the garden in the same way, draw out the beauty of your bride. To to pull the weeds, if you will, to promote fruitfulness. See, being a cultivator, though, is very hard work. That's why my garden doesn't do very well at all, okay? Because in order to be a cultivator, you've got to be devoted to studying the object that's being nurtured. And cultivating a thing is one thing, but cultivating a person, man, it is like cultivating a garden in that it requires careful, enduring dedication to observing and watching and evaluating and feeding and pruning and enjoying the fruitfulness of all that labor, but it requires intentionality and effort. Men are to be gardeners. And my fear is because of sin, 
quite frankly, a lot of your gardens are overgrown because of your abdication and your abandonment and even your abuse of your leadership. And the reason that's happened is because God's ideal that I just laid out for you was destroyed by sin. The serpent entered the garden, God's enemy entered the garden and began to speak lies to Eve. And they weren't just like lies about anything. They were very specific lies about God and about his word. The same kind of whispers that a lot of you men in particular are going to hear and start to believe in your own mind. God's word isn't the way to do it. God doesn't understand my situation. This is different. And the question that whenever we read this narrative, I always want to ask, and all women should ask, was where was the husband? As this poison's being poured out, where the snarf is the husband? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, after Eve has listened to lie after lie after lie from Satan about God and his word. In verse 6 says, So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Same thing that John says in his epistle is all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Wow, it's like it's all part of one story. She took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam was silent. He was silent. And because he was silent because he refused to stand up for the word of God, for the honor of God. It destroyed everything. So the narrative says that he was with her, which seems to imply that he was standing there listening to this poisonous snake speak poison into the person he'd been commanded to protect. So if you think about it, he watched silently as the serpent spoke. He watched silently as she turned her head and looked at the tree. He watched silently as she grabbed the fruit. He watched silently as she ate it. And even after she ate it, think about that time period before Adam did. In that moment, Instead of leading, instead of honoring God, instead of, as difficult as it might have been, rebuking his bride, he followed her into sin. See, the problem with a lot of marriages is are silent men who are watching their families fall apart. And you're waiting for someone to do something or or waiting for something just to happen. And I'm telling you, it's not gonna. You need to open your mouth. 
Adam may have not known, which many men don't, what exactly to say or, or what exactly to do, but he should have done something. That's one thing we know. And so because he did not, they hid in shame, isolated themselves away, and God showed up, and he didn't ask where Eve was, he asked where Adam was. He said, Adam, where are you at? What have you done? And God, knowing what he had done, after Adam tried to blame um, his wife, well, actually he blamed God for giving him his wife. That sound familiar to some, anyone, right? <laughs> I've sat down with men who have said that very thing now that I think about it. Well, man, she's a tough... What? Adam? And here's what he said. All right, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, let me this little sidebar here. That is not a verse to be using, gentlemen. Well, this is why I don't listen to my wife. Look what happened when that happens, right? Okay, so, mind you, what's happening here is that, just as I said last week to wives, when your husband is leading into sin, you ought not follow, but you ought not be silent. You speak up. Same thing here. He should not have followed. He should have spoken up. But he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, quote, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. What happened to work? All that he was supposed to do? It became a job. Privilege went to duty. Joy became pain. It it was hard. Leadership was hard. And it is hard because what you have is a broken gardener with a broken gardening tool trying to cultivate something broken. It's hard to get fruit because of sin. And so apart from Christ, men, quite frankly, give up. And instead of building, as they are called to do, men end up destroying with their words and their fists, and sometimes they're just cold indifference. And instead of protecting, men become defensive, territorial, they defend what's theirs, they attack others, including their bride, and they leave those they love defenseless. And instead of cultivating... Men take, and take, and consume, and exploit, because of sin. And God knows it's hard. I know it's hard. I have experienced it. It is still hard. It is work. But here is where we need to get to. That Jesus did all the hard work, not only so that we can rest in Him, but to give us the ability to walk in Him. That's when you get to, the gospel changes everything, especially work for men, leadership for men. The person and work of Jesus Christ transforms everything, not just so that we feel better about our crappy leadership. He comes to save us from our enslavement to it and to empower us to lead. And the first thing that he teaches us 
is that it is a delight to glorify Him and that leading His way is the most glorifying thing you can do. Leading His way is the most glorifying, as difficult as it feels or looks or how countercultural, counterintuitive it is, it is the most glorifying thing that you can do. And the second thing He teaches us is that leading His way is the most loving thing you can do for your bride. And I also believe that he teaches us that leading does not mean that you suddenly go, okay, i got to lead. It means I call all the shots. Or I'm the boss. Or I make sure that my will is the one that wins every time. Hopefully made that clear last week. Leading her means something very specific. It first means being under the lordship of Christ. And leading her means loving her like Christ loved you. Now, if you are not married yet, let me please, I guess, plead with you and appeal to you. Do not marry a man. Don't spend any more time with a man that doesn't understand this. If he is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, he his own lord. And that is dangerous. I used to tell that to high school girls who come crying about their boyfriends. They'd be weeping. Their whole lives were destroyed. They're crying. They can't do their papers, work, focus on anything. And they'd, you know, afterwards, they what is the problem? This is about a boy. Yeah, it's about a boy. <laughs> and I'd tell, I said, you know what? I'll tell you what the problem with your boy is. She's like, what? I said, he doesn't love Jesus. She's like, what? Seriously, what are you talking about? I said, here's the reality. He's his own Lord, and therefore you're in his kingdom, and he's going to rule you in the way that he sees fit. And that's a dangerous place to be. It kind of made sense to her, actually, even if she didn't love Jesus. Leading her means loving her like Christ loved you. Ephesians 5, the passage that was read by Tim, says it this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, you are commanded to love your wives. You are commanded to love your wives. This is not good advice, it's a command. And that command is not fulfilled when you love according to what culture says, according to how you were taught, or even sometimes how you just your gut tells you you should. It's not just being really affectionate as you tell her what to do. It's not just letting her do whatever she wants so it makes her happy. The commandment is only fulfilled when you love like Christ loved the church. So you have to understand what that is. Christ loved the church, His bride, in a very specific way, and it's a way that is incredibly difficult for all of us who are men. And I hesitate, and I didn't want to write a sermon that gives you five, seven, or ten ways to love your wife. Because 
quite frankly, I think that minimizes what I believe needs to be a comprehensive attitude we are to take, a disposition toward this other person who is one flesh with us. We can eat, I could give you ten things. You start checking your box. A great example is some things that are really good becoming the boxes we checked that prevent us from actually loving as we ought, like date night. I think it's a fantastic idea to date your wife. You should. But you can easily have your date night or buy your flowers or whatever it is that you think you should do and fail to love your bride like Christ, but you feel like, I checked that box. So be careful. Those things are good, but they're only good if they point you towards the goal, which is to love like Christ. This is not about a task. This is not about a rubric. This is not about a checklist. It's about a lifestyle. It's about a rhythm of living, whereby your commitment is all-encompassing. And your commitment, quite frankly, is obvious to everyone who interacts with you, and more so, it's observed in the effect that it has on the beauty of your bride. In every way. Why is that? Because Christ's love for the church was visible. You saw the effects. It wasn't just, I really love you. You saw a result. You saw fruit. Yes, you are responsible for your wife's loveliness. Christ's love for the church was characterized by this. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. And though the Bible commands wives, and it is a commandment, to submit to your husbands. Talked about this last week. A loving husband under the lordship of Christ submits his own desires to her needs. You see how these two work together? Her concerns become his concerns. Her needs, her comfort, her joy, her beauty, her self-fulfillment, her very life more important than his. A loving husband is to do all that he can to promote her well-being, to promote her contentment, to promote her honor unto the Lord. And it's not that he doesn't get to do anything for himself. The curious thing, and if you read later in Ephesians 5, Paul actually commands men to love your wives like you love yourself. And funny, in the Bible, he never has to teach that. Like, men are already good at loving themselves. So it's not that you're not going to do anything for yourself. That's naturally going to happen. What it is, is to say, your first commitment The primary importance is to sacrifice everything in order to relieve the burden on her in everything. That is the man's responsibility. Now, so that we don't misunderstand, know that Christ's love, according to Ephesians 5, had a very specific purpose. His intent was to sanctify his bride, to set her apart not just to make her happy. There is a difference. He sacrificed, that being Christ. He experienced pain. He subjected himself to loss of everything 
so that his bride might be set apart and more devoted to God. Sanctification, that devotion to God, doesn't happen by giving her everything that the world or her sinful flesh tells her that she needs. Did you catch that? You build and you protect and you cultivate your bride by washing her with God's word. By helping her to align her life and your marriage with God's word. Sometimes that means using God's word to bring her hope, to bring her encouragement, to bring her security, to remind her where her true beauty is. You use God's word for that. Because there's lots of other sermons telling her different. And sometimes, and much more difficult for us, that means using God's word to bring correction and to even bring rebuke. Through God's word. That means as difficult as it might be for her to think, you begin to lead in a way that is aligned with God's word even if she is reluctant, because that is the most loving thing to do and the most sanctifying thing to do. Now, that doesn't mean you become the almighty sin hunter in your marriage and begin to you know, just tell her, submit with your pile of verses to prove it. Okay. Instead, it's to say this, that like Jesus, you are called into this marriage, men, as the head of this marriage, men, to love her enough to take responsibility for her sin. To take responsibility for her sin that you didn't cause. What did Christ do? Okay. He was sinless, and yet he said, I'm going to take responsibility for that. That is why, quite frankly, the sanctifying peace God brought Two sinners, which is what we are when we come into marriage. These two sinners together into one flesh. God brought, gentlemen, this particular woman with her personality, with her history, with her giftedness, with her quirks, with her irritations. And he gave her to you to be cared for and protected by, but also to cultivate and be cultivated by. There's this mutual sanctification going on that you lead. Because God believed that it was more glorifying to have you guys together than it was to be alone. And you are to lead in this. And part of this leading is leading with a gospel-centered confession of your own sin. If you're one of those husbands like, my wife never admits she does anything wrong. Have you ever... Have you ever confessed sin to her? Confessed weakness to her? Asked forgiveness of her? Demonstrated repentance to her? No wonder she feels so insecure. No wonder she will never admit she's wrong. You never have. You are to lead in this. That is sanctifying. That is bringing the gospel to bear in your marriage. That is leading with the love of Christ. And Paul says that Jesus' goal in cleansing her by the word, according to verse 27, is that 
he might present his bride in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And I mentioned this at the men's retreat, and I think it's worth mentioning again. For those who have a daughter, I have one, she's beautiful. I love her. She is as girly, girl, girl, princess girl as you can imagine. I was fearful of having a daughter um, who, you know, came out of the womb and was like, Hey, Dad, how you doing? My name's Tina. You know, and like, oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, she's like husky and all these things. And I'm like, no. And so she's girly. Praise God. She's girly. I just, that was important to me. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it was. Wears, you know, five dresses in five hours and just, you know, it's just girly. And I love her. And as I watch her, I begin to ask myself, is anybody good enough for her? Hell no, okay? <laughs> there is no one that lives that is good enough for my bride. He does not exist. I, I pray that he does. I don't think he does, okay? She is more than precious to me, more than, than valuable to me. But I do, in my moments of sanity... Realize that one day, a young man is going to captivate her heart like I do now. I hate to think about that day. And I know, if all things being as I hope they go, that one day, that young man, that boy, is going to ask for her hand in marriage. I know that's coming. I, I do hope that's coming. And I know that one day I'm going to have to walk down that aisle and hand my daughter, whom I've cared for for 45 years, (laughs) to this man. And I'm going to relinquish my somewhat direct responsibility, although I'll always be nearby, (laughs) to build and to protect and to cultivate this, this young lady, this beautiful daughter of mine who I've cared for for all these years. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we expect him to care for her? My my most precious thing. I hand it over. And guys, if you're married, or if you're going to be married someday, that is exactly what God does. He brings his daughter down the aisle, and he gives her to you with certain expectations of how you're going to care for her, and how you're going to sacrifice for her, and how you're going to love her. And someday, you are going to present her back to God. And a word is not going to have to be spoken about how well you did. You will know, and so will he. And my hope is that you will be able to stand before God. And my hope is for me that I can say I I did all that I could. I loved her as your son showed me to love her and empowered me to do. I cared for her as best I could. 
I led her as best I could. Knowing that, and God knows this, you're going to fail. You're never going to perfect and, and love her exactly as you ought. You're going to fall short. But there's certainly those who are running the race and those who are simply not. And we have reasons for not, and I think that's why Paul writes this final little comment about don't be harsh. Because I do believe that as I, as I preach that, I think a lot of you men go, you know what, I, I want to do that, but. I want to love her, but. And he says, don't be harsh, and somewhat, um, seems obvious, like considering he just told us to love, because it seemed like opposites. Um, but as we begin to fight to put on the love of Christ. Let us not forget to put on Christ's meekness and Christ's patience and especially Christ's forgiveness. Because we all have our, our butts, if you will. Here's why I can't, won't, aren't. The word harsh literally means to be embittered, to become bitter toward And I'd argue that some of you men right now who are using the excuses of why you can't or aren't or won't love, you are harboring bitterness. And you're refusing to forgive your wife for something. And most likely, it's because she hasn't had enough respect for you in X number of years. She hasn't had enough sex with you in X number of years. She hasn't cared for you or loved you as you think she should in whatever number of years. Whatever it is you're using to justify why you're harsh or unloving toward her. I plead with you to confess that today. Confess that to him and confess that to her. Like Christ, love starts with intentionality and it starts with initiative. In other words, you don't wait for her to make the first move. Why? Because that's not how Christ did it. Christ did not wait. In love, he came down to a people. He pursued her, us. Jesus did not wait for his bride to listen, but he still spoke the truth. Jesus did not wait for his bride to be lovable, then I'll start. He loved her when she was sinful and dirty and broken. Jesus did not wait for his wife to be respectful to him. In fact, he loved his bride when she was completely disrespectful and killed him and hurt him prior to that. And Jesus did not wait for his wife to repent. He loved her and he offered her forgiveness. Husbands, you are not to love your bride because she deserves it, because she's earned it, or even that you find it easy or her lovable. You are to love her and lead her because the Lord has asked you to. That's enough. And through grace, by His Spirit, you can do it. Love your wife and love her enough to lead her in God's word. Just to conclude, to lead your wife 
but not in a way that aligns with the word of God, please know that that's not loving. To lead her, but not to lead her in the word of God is not loving, even if it works. Catch that? But it works. That it works is not the test of its truth. There are lots of things that work that do not glorify God. So it doesn't matter how long you've been married or how long you've done it this way. If it's not biblical, it's destructive and devoid of the fullness of Christ. And if you have made or are making decisions that don't orient you in a way that's aligned with Scripture and taking your marriage and your lives towards God's design for family and for marriage, then know that you're not leading or loving your brides. And even if it feels sacrificial, it's not the right kind of sacrifices. And if she is burdening the responsibility for all the work that is marriage, you're off. You're off. And here's how you can find out. Ask one simple question. Is she, is she your most cherished helper? Or are you hers? Is she your most cherished helper, or are you hers? Show of hands, how many husbands are here today? Raise your hand if you're a husband or ever been a husband. Raise your hand if you hope, keep your hand up. Raise your hand if you hope to be a husband someday. Okay, that's a majority. All right, let me, let me tell you this. Okay, young man, you raise your hand. There you go. There you go, Cal. Let me just caution you, okay? You don't have to be a husband. But when you choose to be a husband, right? You don't like fall asleep. I, in some cities, I guess this happens, right? You fall asleep and wake up. What the? You know, and that's not how typically marriages happen. You make a choice to covenant with a woman, to put a ring on her finger and a ring on yours. You make a choice to be a husband. That is not something you have to choose. Know that if you choose that, Jesus is the husband. He is the model, the example, the definition of the husband. And so you say, okay, I'm going to be a husband too. If you have chosen to be a husband, you are a walking sermon about Jesus, the husband. And knowing that, you are either preaching truth or preaching lies about Jesus. That's a heavy burden to carry. An incredible privilege because you become a preacher. Take it seriously, please. And love your bride like Christ. By His Spirit, through His strength. Amen.